you are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and canna-curious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Wednesday, February 23rd, 2022. This is episode number 222. I'm Susan Sorries, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, a.k.a. Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 26,000 State of Canvas News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. That's one of the unique things about this show. Not only do we have a panel of expert correspondents, often we have someone in our audience that is intimately involved in the story. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today we're talking about the continuing saga of MedMen, odorless cannabis, the U.S. Supreme Court wants DOJ guidance on workers' compensation issues, a new California tax bill, a Nevada business school gets funding to help diversify the industry, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Nicole West. She is a cannabis business specialist, part-time firefighter and cat herder, and director of operations at LB Atlantis. Nicole is a veteran in the cannabis industry and is always ready to use her experience to guide others. That experience includes taking a felony for a vague and confusing law. During her brief incarceration, she earned the nickname Jail Google from fellow inmates. What's your headline today, Nicole? Well, good morning and happy hump day, everybody. Uh, My headline today comes out of the Cannabis Business Times, and it's just a continuation of the saga that is MedMen. This is interesting because I wasn't 100% on the goings on as far as the acquisition, but as it turns out, last year, in the beginning of the year, um, Ascend Wellness purchased uh, uh, MedMen in the New York location, which is one of 10 licenses under the medical guise, uh, purchased for $73 million. And apparently, MedMen, at the beginning of this year, backed out of the deal. In that process, MedMen backed out of the deal because they made some allegations, which I think is super fucking interesting. I had no idea that it got this weird. So apparently... They provided evidence that the owners of Ascend Wellness were politicking with Kathy Hochul's office. 
And this is something that I 100% believe because that's just the normal interaction in business is, hey, when you're going to be a big business owner, you're going to try to make sure that you understand what's going on politically. But apparently, the counterclaim alleged that one Ascend executive attended a fundraiser for Hochul on December 8th, 2021, and that Ascend founder and CEO, Abner Kutner, met with the governor's senior staff on December 10th. On December 16th, 2021, the two companies received approval for their acquisition agreement from the New York Cannabis Control Board via the state's office in cannabis management, leading to a highly suspect sequence of events. And so it's kind of interesting watching this happen because it sounds like MedMen is saying that uh, Ascend bribed or, or coerced Kathy Hochul's office. But now, apparently, MedMen is going to be withdrawing, which I think is hilarious because no, everyone knows that once you say something in fucking court or to the government, it's on record. It doesn't matter. You can un, you could strike it from the record. It doesn't matter. Lawyers even know that. They'll say shit just so that the judge could be like, that's overruled. And be like, well, the fucking jury heard it. And at the end of the day, the jury heard it, you know? Um, so MedMen is going to be withdrawing, which they haven't yet, their statement in regards to to a few choice words that they used in regards to the Kathy Hochul allegations. Um, while the court filings do not show the MedMen have withdrawn the allegation as of Tuesday morning, according to the AP, MedMen attorney Alex Spio told the news outlet that the company will amend its filing and remove very specific allegations that are subject to the very carefully worded and very limited denials by Ascend and the governor's office. So super curious to see how this shakes out. And I'm Nicole West reporting for the State of Cannabis News. I feel like we need to have a special sound effect just for MedMen. I'm open for suggestions if anyone has any. But we have Gary Strahl up from the audience and Elliot Lewis. I'd like to hear from both of you if you want to weigh in on Nicole's headline. Yeah, I'll weigh in. Two interesting little tidbits not in the headline that maybe aren't fairly well known. Number one, the deal they closed in Long Beach at One Love. It was supposed to be for $13 million. Those guys had a caller on the deal, which basically means that they were assured to get 100% of the stock value. When the deal was done at around $2 and the stock price tanked to $0.16, MedMen is stiffing them. All they have to do is write a note that cuts the shares. That's 65 million shares that are outstanding that they have no reason not to pay. All they have to do is make the paperwork. They can literally pay in their Confederate dollars. We are in litigation with MedMen for the same reason they backed out of the deal they owe us around 35 million shares. We all agree the deal is now terminated. So that's 100 million shares that they owe. And the reports in Canada, I guess they have different rules. Finally, they've got it together because I've been shit talking the CEO. They're not publicly reporting this $100 million uh, liability. I have been excommunicated from all the depositions because they think I will publicly talk shit about them if they let me into the depositions, but I have enough information that I can publicly talk shit about them. But nonetheless, on top of this, I am personally aware of two deals, one where they owe 65 million, which was the old One Loves Place, and to us approximately 30 million. Now they just want their money back. I'm not giving them their money back. They could go fuck themselves. But there are 100 million shares owed just in Long Beach. The place is a dumpster fire. Fuck Bedman. That's all I have to say. Adam Bierman is the cannabis industry's Tindler swindler. <laughs> Absolutely. Gary, Classic. did you want to weigh in? Hey, everyone. I, I'm just learning about this, to be honest. So I, I'm just here to listen about this topic at this point. All right. Where's Thanks the for gong? listening. Where's the gong? 
That was just a little gong. We call that Damien Jr. gong. But at the end of the day, this is of no surprise. And, you know, thank you, Elliot, for weighing in with such personal experience. But as everybody's been watching, I mean, from the way that they run their businesses to the vendors, the way that they pay their vendors, you know, they've tried to offer shares of their stock for hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt that they have to these brands that are struggling to stay alive. So, like, fuck them and the fucking horse that they rode in on. Not to mention, Nicole, on the offer of those shares, they're offering a quarter of the value of the debt in their shares to alleviate that debt. All right, I got a sound. Fi- I got a sound effect for him. Let's do it. <laughs> I don't know, man. Isn't that the Price is Right like failure song? Like, I feel like that. That's Brandon. Brandon, what say you? <laughs> I think we need prices. We need to do a sound effect with like Jason or Rico being like, "Dude, bro, man." <laughs> I mean, we could do that. I also, I also firmly believe that for Men Men sound effect, we could totally have a toilet bowl. Just oh, flushing. I have another one. There we go. All right, are we done with this headline? Anyone else want to weigh in? Nope. Okay, up next is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads and is the patriarch of dad jokes. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What's your headline today, Rico? Uh, my headline's coming out of the great white north, Canada. You like weed but not the smell? Odorless cannabis smells 600% less skunky than regular marijuana. Canadian Cannabco Pharmaceutical Corp yesterday released the results of an extensive 50-page lab report conducted by a third-party specialty lab specializing in odor analysis. The Ontario-based agrotech company currently has two primary technologies, Pure Scent for the growing of odorless cannabis and Phoenix, an enhanced cultivation system featuring a hydroponic grow technology showing a lower cost per gram than traditional grows. The company received its confirmation of readiness from the health, from health Canada to become a licensed producer and is currently building out a facility in the Brampton area. Centroid, a lab specializing in odor assessment and environmental impact, took on testing duties at the request of one of the big four financial consulting firms, commissioning a report detailing the pure scent technology used in Canabco's purported odorless cannabis products. By executing a comparative analysis between Canabco and mainstream cultivars, also known in some circles as loud, measuring the amounts of odor produced and impact on surrounding areas. Centroid was chosen due to his extensive resume working with governments, municipalities, various environmental sectors, and Fortune 500 companies. The reported results uh, were good news for those looking to silence the loud as multiple tests conducted under specific detailed identical conditions and concentrations showed a nearly 600% reduction in odor for the uh, Canabco product compared to others. In fact, the report claims odorless cannabis was barely detectable in a four-meter radius, while regular cannabis odor was disruptive and negatively impactful in a 50-meter radius. Canabco president and CEO Mark Pelicane uh, responded to the results by saying, we knew what to expect. Nevertheless, receiving quantitative numbers are so significant due to the market, um, and it's such a major milestone. Centroid also conducted hedonic testing, measuring the negative effects produced odor could re- register on nearby humans. Per Benzinga, the method 
is an important metric because it means even if the same strength odor is released during storage, vaporation, evaporation, or combustion, the odorless cannabis will create fewer complaints and seems less intense. The non-cannabco cannabis tested uh, had odor deemed 90% likely to elicit a complaint or negative response, but odorless cannabis's uh, likelihood was insignificant. Cannabco anticipates the industry launch somewhere in Q2 this year, planning to initially distribute products domestically in Canada and license some of their brands and technology globally. This is Rico Lameet, dopest dad in the north and south of the border, reporting for State of Cannabis News Hour. What do you all think? Odorless weed? Is it the future? This study, Rico, all it proves is that Canadians grow booth because the number one rule in weed is no smell, no sell. The other thing is scientifically, as we know, the terpenes have so much effect in this. So my thought is, what is this really going to have and how much whole plant is this? Yeah, it'd be interesting to see. Cannabis has gotten it. They would launch a company and not realize how off the mark that is. Like the cannabis shame and bias right there is so over the top and they have money in their pockets. I don't like it it makes me sad for the state of the world. Some non-Canadian companies testing the results as well. Um, I'd like to see that. Uh, rather than just like kind of vague reporting from only Canadian labs. Rico, I've actually already I've already tested this theory because I used to smoke bammer weed uh, back in the very beginning of weed, and, and that definitely had no 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 taste or no smell. Don't give me no bammer weed. It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, they they bred the scent out of most roses, and it's so disappointing to go up to a rose and it doesn't smell like anything. I mean, that's kind of half the point. I believe it was Andre three thousand that revealed to the world that roses really smell like boo boo. I don't. Only some people. What does that mean? I don't, I'm confused. We've got Nicole Buffong up from the audience. Nicole, did you want to weigh in on Rico's headline? Yes, real quick. Thank you for having me. This makes me really sad. Like Liz said, I moved from Georgia to Nevada. I moved to a, a, a regulated state because uh, and chose this regulated state because they mandate terpene testing. And for a cannabis patient, terpenes are so vital in picking my medicine. And to, to, to hear that there's a company that's um, marketing the fact that they're making um, smell-proof cannabis just means that they're taking the terpenes out, which is terrible. It's crazy. It's crazy. Let's keep smoking the news. Well, all right. Up next, we have Miss Gretchen Gailey. Gretchen's the founder of Panoptic Strategies and our Washington Insider. What do you have for us today, Gretchen? Good afternoon, Nicole. My headline is coming from uh, Marijuana Moment. And the headline is U.S. Supreme Court asked for feds to weigh in on medical marijuana workers' compensation cases. Does federal law protect employers who choose not to cover medical marijuana costs for workers injured on the job, even in states that seek to require it? State courts have reached different conclusions on the question, and now the U.S. Supreme Court is asking the top Justice Department lawyer to weigh in. Justices were scheduled to discuss a pair of cases at private conference on Friday that concerned Minnesota employees who sought workers' compensation for medical cannabis expenses after being hurt while working on the job. Now the Supreme Court is asking the Solicitor General to submit a brief, a notable development in the cases that appear to hinge on an interpretation of the Supremacy Clause of the U.S. Constitution. For its part, the Minnesota Supreme Court ruled late last year that both workers' comp claims were invalid because of marijuana's Schedule I status under the Federal Controlled Substances Act. 
In one case, Susan must have filled, filed a petition with the U.S. Supreme Court in November after her state's highest court determined that the C- CSA did indeed mean her employer did not need to provide reimbursement for medical cannabis after she was injured at her workplace, a dental center. Empire State Normal and two other groups, the New York City Cannabis Industry Association and the Hudson Valley Cannabis Industry Association, submitted a Miki Curie briefs urging the court to hear the case in December. Similarly, the state Supreme Court made the same judgment in another case where a man named Daniel Burbach was injured at his job working for an all-terrain vehicle company and sought compensation for medical marijuana. Burbach submitted his petition for a writ of certiorari months after Musa in January. He argued that because employers aren't required to possess, manufacture, or distribute cannabis in contravention of federal law, Simply providing workers' compensation for marijuana is not preempted by the CSA. Filings in both cases were distributed on February 2nd for a Supreme Court conference that was scheduled on February 18th. Now the justices are seeking input on the issue from the Biden administration. The Solicitor General is invited to file a brief in this case expressing the views of the United States, which was the latest entry on both case docket. Minnesota isn't the only state where the issue has been raised and taken to court, and state courts have taken different approaches in their respective rulings. When a case arose in the Maine Supreme Court, the body took a similar approach to Minnesota's. Meanwhile, the high courts of both New Hampshire and New Jersey have ruled that reimbursements to medical marijuana patients can go forward regardless of federal prohibition. With the spread of the state-level legalization movement and the growing number of legal cases where these federal-state policy conflicts are emerging, such as with these worker compensation challenges, more stakeholders are asking the U.S. Supreme Court to do something to settle the debate. I think this is interesting, and I would love to hear uh, what some of our attorneys on the panel think, especially Brandon. To me, I don't see this as a great thing, simply because I think the Solicitor General is going to say pot is fairly illegal. Deal with it. I don't see them doing any favors for this cases. However, given that there are so many discrepancies in the rulings in the various states, it might push the, the court to actually hear one. This scratching for State of Cannabis News Hour. Very interesting uh, story and article. And I, I think we really do need to pay attention to what the Supreme Court's going to say and what the DOJ guidance will be. I tend to agree with you, Gretchen. They're going to try and figure out a way to be able to claim that these payments are not reimbursable. That said, I know that the insurance industry is actively considering subsidizing medical cannabis under, you know, the Compassionate Care Act. And I think that's a great idea because cannabis is really good medicine and insurance companies should subsidize it. And I think that the legal experts are right. This is going to just keep coming up again and again, especially if we have to get into interstate commerce at some point. I mean, the court's going to have to look at this sooner or later. I've actually seen cannabis being utilized in a workers' compensation case against um, the employee from the employer stating that the employer was um, you know, under the influence of medical cannabis as a part of the argument to not give them any workers' compensation. Um, that was a very interesting case that I actually saw pan out in a way that based on the manuals and the, you know, requirements, technically, they were able to say that the, the you know, person was under the influence um, when they came to work. I, I'm curious if ultimately if they continue to deny all these claims, if we may get into a place where the denial of these claims is disproportionately affecting protected classes of citizens and that in and of itself becomes an issue that has to be grappled with legally and that could push it over to finally they're going to start allowing these as 
compensable reimbursements under federal law. I have a quick question. If the court were to decide, yes, these folks have to allow the workers' comp claims, does that keep them from having to answer the federal prohibition claim? If it's like, yes, states, you got to deal with this and not get the feds involved. I'm curious if it could avoid the federal issue. The fact that, you know, medical cannabis are state is state law driven and insurance markets are also state law driven. I feel that the, well, we can't do this because federal law prohibits it is just a complete bullshit cop out. So, you know, I, I, I think ultimately, even though federal law supersedes state law everywhere in the land, that insurance is a state-driven thing. Medical cannabis is a state-driven thing. And the federal government just needs to step out of the fucking way, including the judges. Didn't Kaiser Permanente do a, sto- a study about their patients that used cannabis actually used their services less? I, I seem to remember that. I'm not sure if Car- uh, Kaiser Permanente did, but I'm pretty sure that Kaiser Brose did. 100%. When the insurance companies realize that they will save money by subsidizing their, their insurees' cannabis and will ultimately spend less, meaning they can keep more of the premiums, they're going to figure out a way in which it's legal for them to do it. That's a big win, Brendan. Yes, it is. We are at the end of time for that story. Up next, in Detroit... He's white Gucci. Out at Mar-a-Lago, his winter haven, the staff calls him Gucci Blanco. Here in California, where he's racked up more experience than most as the industry's longest continuously running retailer in the local nickname, Kaiser Brose, the Green Street hooligan. Up next, we've got Jason Beck. What you got for us this morning, my man? Oh, thank you so much, Rico. Today, as you know, I generally bash politicians that create bad policy, but today I'm here to sing the praises of one that actually introduced some sensible policy that the entire industry needs to get behind and support. Senator Bradford introduced SB 1281. Some key language in the bill. This bill would discontinue the imposition of the cultivation tax, would reduce the excise tax to 5%, and would remove the markup from the definition of average market price in an arm's length transaction. The bill would remove the requirement that the distributor collect the excise tax from the cannabis retailer and would instead require the cannabis retailer to remit the excise tax to the department. The bill would make these provisions effective beginning January 1st, 2023. On and after January 1, 2023, a cannabis retailer shall be responsible for collecting the cannabis excise tax from the purchaser and remitting the cannabis excise tax to the department in accordance with the rules and procedures established under law and any regulations adopted by the department. And also, too, nothing in this section shall be construed to impose an excise tax upon medical cannabis or medical cannabis product donated for for no consideration to a medical cannabis patient pursuant to Section 26071 of the Business and Professional Code. And what that means is if you're giving away cannabis under SB 34, there's not going to be any excise tax associated with it. So in closing, the big takeaways from this legislation are, number one, excise tax going from 15% to 5%, even though it's actually 27% to 5%. The cultivation tax will be totally eliminated at zero. Retailers, that they will remove the language of the arm's length transaction, which is the trigger piece for taxation, which makes our 15% actually 27% when we pay excise tax. And not only that, and number four, 
retailers will remit excise tax once a sale has been commenced instead of a retailer having to pay up front the excise tax to a distributor upon receiving product and then having it reimbursed upon a sale. This is a bill the entire industry needs to get behind. Again, this bill is SB 1281. Call your state senators and demand action on this bill. All the unions and special interest groups will be gunning to kill this bill. So it's up to our industry to move this bill forward. And we already saw a half stroke measure uh, to, to reduce the cultivation tax and pass it off as an increase on the excise tax. And we saw when I reported on Monday, all the parents coming out saying, what about the children? What about the children? So cannabis industry, we need to activate around Senator Bradford, give them all of our support and support SB 1281. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Here at the State of Cannabis News Hour, we support the full stroke. Uh, <laughs> also, too, I know we have Elliot was going to comment, and we also, uh, Sean Kernan was going to comment from Weed for Warriors as well. Yeah, look, I'll just jump in real quick. This is a live ball. I agree with Jason. Thank you so much for covering this. It's not the perfect bill, but I think the industry needs to get behind it. A few quick thoughts on it. Senator Bradford is the right guy to be leading this bill. There's already early support from a, a lot of local you know, senators. You got Eduardo, you got uh, Weso, you got Kerry, you got Archuleto, Rubio, who's good to have. We got the chair, Dodd. We also, on the other side, have Gibson, who's a, a good guy to get bills through. I, there is a little bit of consternation, which is very, 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 very misplaced. I have a call tomorrow with all the UFCW uh, reps and fellow retailers. It does not matter where the tax goes. There's a little bit of a sentiment out there. The retailers are like, oh, no, they're moving the distribution tax to the retail tax. No, that's stupid in all ways. Right now, I buy a product for $10. It costs twelve seventy. I would much rather pay the tax later, A, and B, have it be less than a dollar. Look, I think they need to lower the tax a little bit, three, taking effect, but I'd rather just support a bill that is a big leap forward than get into the nuances because they don't do nuances. I agree 100% with Jason. Here comes the SEIU and all the other special interests to fuck this shit up. But the SEIU, it appears, has got just enough money in there to make their earmark. So I think this is the first bill that actually has a chance, that has a lot of early support. It's a live ball. We're working it on our end. Seems to have support of all the local people around here. They're in the state government. And Senator Bradford, brains and balls. Let's push this thing forward. That's all I got. Well, SB 1281, provide weed for the people, Elliot. Well, look, I'd like to abolish all taxes. But I will say this, every bit of savings that I get, and I've already told staff and anybody that will listen, we're passing it on to the customer. We're not trying to make more margin. We're trying to cut into the BM as much as we can. This is about fucking market share, and it will bring weed for the people. I mean, I feel like in a in a big way, it's just a reassociation, but, you know. Well, I'm, I'm with Elliot. Let's make sure that the greedy folks at the top, because the food chain starts starts at the top with cultivation. So if you're not paying any taxes, let's make sure that rings down so that, that, that the consumer can be able to see some, some tax breaks, because in California, it's ridiculous. So Yeah, I don't think the consumer is actually going to see it, and I think it'll be a temporary stopgap. It kind of feels like using duct tape on a boat issue, but, you know, there's there's definitely some pretty strong duct tape out there, but I just don't feel like this is the solve. But it, a, li a little bit is something, and as Gretchen always tells us, sometimes you got to take what you can get.
This is the best bill that we have had introduced on any type of tax reform in, in the state when it comes to cannabis. And the cannabis industry is in desperate need of, of, of having some type of tax relief. Otherwise, it's going to fucking sink. But the tax reform has to rain down to the people, though, Jason. The tax reform reform will rain down to the people because once you drop the excise tax from 27% to 5%, that's a major drastic drop right now. That's 22%. But also the cost of just getting the cost of goods is going to be so much cheaper on the cultivation side. None none of that matters. The taxes are way too fucking exorbitant in California. It's fucking ridiculous. And only a Democrat can tax out of existence the cannabis industry. (laughs) And the customer (laughs) always pays the tax. No matter where they take it from, it's coming out of the customer pocket. That's why the bill is so big. In well, then, California. So, so then, then, then just say that this is a big business tax, and for big business in California, which it's, we know there's it's, a lot it's of big not business, a big in business Canada, tax. It's a tax reduction and something that industry I, desperately fucking needs. I'm Look, not saying it doesn't I, I, need it, but just be, let's call I, I it fade It's a little bit of a half measure, but it's the best thing we've it, got. Well, and, and again, I'm not, and I'm not refusing. It. It's not a, it's not, it's a measure needed. But let's call it spade a spade. Don't, don't, don't make it out yes. that business and cannabis is not going to win from it. Like, like, let's yes. be honest. Business has well, to win, otherwise, we, none of us would be doing anything, Liz. We'd be sitting in our houses, fucking smoking. Well, then pipes. guess what? We can go, go, go um, we can go grow our own weed and smoke at home and be okay. But big, that's, business that, that, that's the most ridiculous comment I've heard all day. Oh well. Sorry. Look, I, I, I got it. Like, that doesn't make sense. At the end of the day, the consumer pays the tax. The consumer is the one getting getting taxed. Any reduction goes to the consumer. The tax is a cost. It gets passed along. Yes, big business or whatever you want to call it will be bigger. But those will be legal operators that are doing legal paying jobs with OSHA protections, rights for workers. I could go on and on. Oh, and by the way, maybe veterans and people who need their medication to get it for cheaper. Somebody has to profit off it. Why not be the legal market? This is not a tax cut for big business. It's a tax cut for the people. Again, it's not perfect, but it's the first one that I've seen that's not a total pile of shit, and I'm getting behind it. Well, everybody- 100%, Elliot. This is yeah. a fucking tax cut for the fucking people, and anyone that wants to paint it as a tax cut for big business needs to go back to fucking economics class. And I'd really, really, really like to smoke a peace pipe. Yes, and I think we need to get a room on this topic. We will be talking about it more this week, but we've passed the half hour mark, so we're going to do a quick relight. Oh, shit. Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. A family raised with roots in Long Beach, a single mother building generational wealth, the first of its kind, changing lives and enhancing highs. Medicate high luxury. Meet Canna Express. High luxuries, cannabis, flower, and concentrates available now at your local Catalyst dispensaries. Let's keep smoking the news. Well, up next, we have Menika Mahajan. Menika is a pot-smoking PhD and a political economist and the founder of Mahajan Consulting. What do you have for us today, Menika? Good morning, Nicole. Good morning, correspondents and audience. My story today comes from Kyle Yeager of Marijuana Moment, and the headline reads, Top Federal Drug Agency Funds Research on Differing Legal Marijuana Regulatory Models. 
The National Institute on Drug Abuse, NIDA, is hoping to fund studies on the public health effects of different cannabis regulatory models. The NIDA notice acknowledges that policies are changing faster than the knowledge about public health impacts, and as more states and countries legalize cannabis for medical and or adult use, the research gap keeps getting wider. Recognizing the inevitability of legalization and the need to start thinking more seriously about regulatory models for cannabis, the agency has published a notice of interest outlining the type of study proposals it hopes to fund. The guidance is informed by a 2018 workgroup's recommendations. Find the link to that workgroup report on the NIH grant site. And for anyone who's interested, search Google for notice number NOT-DA-22-003, and I'll repeat that a little bit later. The new study solicitation is nearly identical to the one NIDA put out in 2019 that expired last month. They are refunding this research. Some examples of potential studies include how do patterns of use and methods of administration impact physical and mental health? What are the interactions with alcohol, tobacco, and opioids? Why do users start and continue using cannabis for therapeutic purposes? What are the effects of maternal cannabis consumption during pregnancy and breastfeeding? What are the impacts of federal, state, and local cannabis policies and their implementation on the use and health outcomes? And you can see the full list in the notice itself. NIDA also again said that it would be interested in funding research about different regulatory schemes. For example, models for retail distribution, trying to understand which combinations or components minimize harm to public health. That's their lens. Researchers in the audience, here's that notice number again. NOTDA22003. Type that into Google and you'll pull up the notice of special interest and read about the different types of grants and the application deadlines. The first due date is June 5th, 2022, and this grant solicitation expires in May 2025, so we have a few years. What's not clear from the article or the notice is the total amount of available funding. I'm going to be looking into this opportunity further and hope other policy or public health experts in the state of cannabis community do the same. Here's why. We can advance informed policy when people who are experienced with cannabis, rather than researchers who are scared of cannabis, conduct fair and methodologically sound studies. We can explore research questions that start from a stigma-free attitude about cannabis. Otherwise, the federal government will continue to hear from researchers whose lens is substance abuse and harms. An analysis of cannabis research funding found that of $1 billion from NIDA from 2000 to 2018, most of the money went to researching misuse and negative effects. Let's balance that out, State of Cannabis listeners. With more research applications from actual cannabis experts, we can impact the research questions that are studied and bring more data and analysis on the potential therapeutic and social benefits, societal benefits of cannabis. My name is Menika Mahajan, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis NewsHour. More confusion, more taxes. Taxes. Less more boof. Don't forget that part, Rico. More boof. Anything. Wait, how does boof connect? Because NIDA, um, NIDA doesn't grow anything stronger than THC Delta 6 because it gums up their fucking rolling machines. Oh, sure. But this study can actually, we can, um, it's not just, there is a component of the, the notice that allows people to study using um, THC produced from, you know, these, these accepted sources. But there's also uh, research that can be done on public health impact using local data, using state data. And so it's not just uh, actually studying from the plant. Menica, how competitive is it to get any of these research dollars? I have not applied for these, um, so I don't know. I think this is wonderful that 
this is moving forward because I think it, it shows that the stigma is dropping. Obviously, people are following the money. But for medical patients, this is really going to move our, the research forward. And it's showing the willingness to do that, especially from drug enforcement agency. Liz, I agree with you. Um, and I think that whether or not this research does move things forward for patients, <clears throat> excuse me, depends on what types of studies uh, are proposed to NIDA. So if we keep getting studies about, you know, how to prevent substance abuse, and that's the starting point, then that's the type of evidence that those researchers are finding confirmation of. But if we balance some of that out with more research on how cannabis helps people and some of the societal benefits, then um, then these government agencies will get access to analysis from qualified researchers that tells them a different story about what cannabis can do for people and communities. Let's keep smoking the news. How about we do just that, Susan? Now, she's well known for bringing the, the drama-free data we love so much here at SOC NewsHour. And our next correspondent is an educator, brand strategist, healthcare consultant, founder of the Cannabis Business Council of Santa Barbara County, and in support of all of our women fans out there. I say this in the least patriarchal and misogynistic way uh, possible. She's also our very own pinup girl. Coming to the stage, it's Liz Rogan. What you got for us today, Liz? Thank you for that amazing intro, Rico, and greetings, everyone. Happy Hump Day and another palindrome day. So thanks for tuning in with us. My story is from the Oklahoman by Dale Denwaite. The headline reads, Law Enforcement Officers Conduct Massive Raid of Black Market Marijuana. Issue Arrest Warrants. So early Tuesday, Oklahoma Drug Enforcement Officers conducted a massive raid of nine cannabis grow operations targeting criminal organizations that are believed to have transported black market cannabis out of state. The raid was led by the Oklahoma Bureau of Narcotics in conjunction with more than 200 law enforcement officers from the DEA, Homeland Security, Bureau of Indian Affairs, along with state, tribal, and local law enforcement in Oklahoma, Missouri, and Iowa. Oklahoma boasts more retail dispensaries than any other state in the country and has a surplus supply being grown. This has led to a large amount of illicit market sales and many sham business entities. OPN says this raid is the largest cannabis-related bust in Oklahoma history. OBN spokesperson Mark Woodward said that the agency has been targeting numerous individuals and organizations that have moved to Oklahoma from out of state and used fraudulent business structures and ghost owners to obtain their Oklahoma medical marijuana licenses. He says these criminals try to blend into our state's medical marijuana program while trafficking marijuana into the illicit market around the United States, laundering money and moving millions of dollars in drug proceeds overseas. Their investigation identified brokers moving millions of dollars from multiple Oklahoma farms to other states, including but not limited to California, North Carolina, Missouri, Indiana, and Texas. Arrest warrants were issued for 13 individuals in Oklahoma, with one in California and three in Texas. Five have been taken into custody, and more arrests are expected. The raids netted an estimated 100,000 plants and over 2,000 pounds of processed cannabis. This will also bring asset forfeiture cases against multiple vehicles, bank accounts, cash, equipment, and at least eight of the properties involved. Woodward said those arrested in the operation faced a variety of charges, including aggravated trafficking and aggravated manufacturing. Interestingly enough, OBN director Donnie Anderson says the farm workers should not be targeted for arrest, saying they're workers, not criminals. 
They try to identify if human trafficking is occurring. They offer services, speak with individuals, identify who they are, and let them go. He said the officials believe many workers at the illicit farms across the state are victims of labor trafficking. Officials say more of these large-scale law enforcement operations are planned as they continue to investigate hundreds of suspected illegal cannabis growing operations. We are, Anderson said, we are sending a clear and powerful message today that Oklahoma is not a safe haven for criminals who think they can hide behind a medical marijuana license. My agency is committed to aggressively targeting and dismantling these marijuana trafficking organizations that threaten the safety and well-being of our citizens and the law-abiding marijuana businesses in our state. So this is a, a very large bust, and I'd love to hear if anyone from correspondents or from the audience has anything to say. This is Liz Rogan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. So Oklahoma, expect to see a lot more of that shit. I'm honestly surprised that they're moving it to California, seeing that we have so much cannabis, and it usually is kind of higher quality, I'd say, than Oklahoma cannabis. But I haven't smoked it, so or tried it. Except for the California just, cannabis that's found in Oklahoma. That's top notch. Yeah, that's called Oklahoma. Um, but Rico, um, I mean, I feel like with, with these guys uh, cracking down on the illicit market in Oklahoma, um, these guys, this is just not even a small dent in the whole uh, in, in the whole illicit market. And uh, Oklahoma law enforcement needs to like boot up and strap up every single day of the week for the rest of the year if they expect to even crack a dent in the Oklahoma trap market. I mean, now that half the state of Oklahoma is, is, is pretty much Native American uh, territory, uh, couldn't you just move over there and, and do what the fuck you want to do. You 100% could do that. Um, but at the same time, people have to realize that once you bring cannabis from a reservation onto U.S. soil, that is basically the same thing as bringing weed from Canada to the U.S. So you are crossing an international line. And most likely to be producing boof. Definitely producing boof and, and getting caught with boof by law enforcement. So you'd be all the way boofed up. Double boof. All the way boofed If up. that was a hairdo, Susan, it'd be a bouffant. Wow, Jason. Impressive. All right. Well, sounds like it's time to hop to our next correspondent. Thank you so much for that headline, Liz. Um, up next, we have Guy Ricourt. He's the co-founder and CEO of Papa and Barkley. Um, and he's also one of our board members. Guy, what do you have for us today? Hi, good morning. Thank you, Nicole. Good morning, Susan. Good morning, Rico. So this is coming out of... Uh, Fox 5 in Vegas. And, you know, this article actually kind of cheered me up because some good things are happening here. It reads, Cannabis Business School Helps BIPOC Nevadans Enter Industry. Um, so their regulatory system led by Tick Sigerberm, and one of the things that made me happy right at the top, top of the article is Tick Sigerbloom, I'm sorry, is quoted as saying, now that these white guys are making a fortune, let's pass some of that success on to Onto other people, said the commissioner. Last week, Clark County Commission approved 270000 of the, the county's marijuana fees to fund businesses, networking, and mentoring program, which offers certificate to those who complete successfully. Sigurd Bloom said Pathways to Ownership is the first of its kind in the U.S., and it was developed by Aisha Gones, who is the chair of the Cannabis Advisory Subcommittee on Social Equity. Goins said that she hopes part what she hopes participants will get out of it is the confidence they need to do business and be good at it and then also create a network of mentors. You know, the cannabis industry is a budding industry in Nevada. Following the legalization of recreational cannabis about five years ago, there's over a hundred million dollars that goes into school from that. 
Clark County makes 15 million on their own. And so again, Sigurdbloom with the great quote says, it's a great industry and should no pun intended, keep growing. So definitely liking this guy. Few regulators seem to just see the facts. Uh, he goes on to say the marijuana the marijuana industry at least ownership is fairly white dominated. A lot of rich white a lot of rich guys got in early, said Sigur Bloom. There are people who are actually adversely impacted by marijuana being illegal were people of color. According to the state of Nevada, roughly 300 business permits have been issued, and only three have gone to black owned citizens. So I love that the state at a at a, at a legislator level, or I should say as an administrator level, a guy who's in charge of this is seeing the problem and addressing it openly for what it is. I don't think we could ask more. So very exciting. They also go on to quote a gentleman named Turner. I can't see where I can. Oh, Douglas Turner. Turner did successfully ha- get help with his application for a cannabis business lounge. I should, uh, cannabis consumption lounge. I should say that the top of the article also says that in a few months, Clark County will be accepting business applications for cannabis lounges. And now this one of a kind program is allowing people of color to navigate that. And Douglas Turner was one of the first people to get help from this program to produce his application. Anyway, this is Guy Roquet reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Happy to bring this light article to today's news hour. Thank you. We've got uh, Danny up from the audience. I believe, Danny, you are in Nevada, correct? We'd love to hear from you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm a vice president and co-founder of the Chamber of Cannabis. And I wanted to say Tick Segerbloom has been an ally forever. They call him the godfather of pot here. They have a strain named after him, Segerbloom Hayes. He even brought pot brownies to the Senate hearings back in the day when they were looking to legalize. Um, I did want to say that um, our demographics report is extremely disparaging. And uh, we aim to change this. I will say they have not finished putting out regulations or even the licensing application. So we keep hearing folks saying they're applying for licenses or whatever, but we're still one step behind. Um, those haven't come out, but I greatly look forward to uh, changing these changing these demographics. It's embarrassing, um, and I definitely there's a lot of people carrying this along the along the way. Uh, CEIC and then also M4MM does incredible work here in bringing uh, social equity and like guiding and advising us um, to do that. So. It's, you know, it takes a village and we're here for it. And, uh, you know, Nevada, we're looking forward to, you know, leading an equitable future um, and hopefully being the gold standard for the rest of the country. Thank you. Thank you so much, Danny. Um, I'd love it if you connected me with with Tick. I've got a uh, an event that I want to bring him into. It's great to know that he is so supportive. And, yep, and openly a cannabis consumer. So he's radical, and uh, I would ha- be happy to connect you. Susan at stateofcannabis.org. Thank you so much, Danny. Now, the CEO of deliciously vegan and kosher edible brand Fruits Lab's Beard Game is what some describe as strong. He's also a cannabis and intellectual property attorney, repping Long Beach to the fullest. Up next, we've got Brandon Dorsky. What you got for us this morning, my man? Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Today, my headline comes from seattletimes.com. It's cannabis sales increased across Washington during the pandemic. Here's where sales soared. It should come as no surprise that cannabis consumption increased during the pandemic, no matter where you live. But data from the Washington State Alcohol and Cannabis Control Board shows sales increased in the state of Washington by $450 million over the last two years, which is roughly 43% from 2019 to 21, with retail sales now totaling nearly $1.5 billion. 
in 2021, which means it generated $550 million in excise taxes for the state, which went to public health programs. The data showed increases were most substantial in rural parts of the state, and particularly eastern Washington, which borders the non-legal Idaho. In the 37 counties that have cannabis retailers, sales increased by double digits across the two years. The largest increases were in those counties bordering Idaho, with multiple counties seeing over a 100% increase. In Lincoln County, sales doubled from 800,000 in 2019 to 1.4 million in 2021. The highest spend per capita in the state was seen in Asatin County at $866 per person living in the county. In Asatin, there were $15 million in sales for an adult population of less than 18,000 people. The buoyed sales were most likely supported by Idaho residents. The eastern counties with sales spikes did not have a lot of consumption to begin with, but because they didn't have a lot of consumption and then saw drastic increases, their per capita sales are through the roof. The number two county for sales was Spokane, with $388 per capita, also buoyed by Idaho purchasers. Idaho doesn't have legal marijuana, and Oregon does, so border towns on the southern border of Washington did not experience the same bump. The smallest bump was actually in Klickitat County, which is just north of the Oregon border. The highest per capita spending in a Washington county not bordering Idaho was actually in Grays Harbor, a coastal county in southwestern Washington and home to the city of Aberdeen. There, the 60,000 adults spent more than $20 million in cannabis in 2021 for an average per capita spend of $347. Some of Grays Harbor's 2021 bump was from the sale of fruit slabs, which are produced in nearby Port Townsend. King County, where Seattle is located, saw the largest total sales increase, up $85 million from 2019, but they were already doing $383 million a year as of 2019, so the percentage bump was not as significant. All across the board, cannabis sales increased. What is very clear is that when you're in a state that borders a non-legal state, if you are a retailer operating in a city that's near a border town, you are raking it in. So, news to the states that don't yet have legal cannabis. Make cannabis legal, and the money will flow in. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis News. I agree with you, Brandon, but I also think that 2020 numbers are weird and 2021 numbers are strange also, and I can't wait to see the 2022 numbers. Why do you think that they're weird specifically? Well, 2020 people had lots of unemployment. Like the article said, there's money and people were out of work and they weren't going to be drug tested, so... I think that the 2020 numbers are unusually high. I think that's a good point, Susan, because I know for like producers, right, we were getting a lot better money in 2020, and then the next year came along and it was really a lot more challenging, like 50% lower price-wise. Hi, I just wanted to jump in that this argument is also good for people who want to flip towns in their state that have banned. We're working with some of the communities on the Cape that have passed bans, and it's like, look, those guys, it's medical only, and they grow, they go down the street to get cannabis from a rec shop, and you're losing money. So we're using that in our towns to uh, flip a banned town. So it's a good strategy to use. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for that suggestion and conversation and Brandon for that headline. Um, up next, we have Christopher Smith. He's the communications strategist and the publisher of the American Cannabis Report and our very own Clark Kent. What do you have for us today, Superman? 
Hi, Nicole. Sorry. Thank you so much. And good morning, Susan. Good morning, Rico. Uh, a quick announcement that's tangential to the cannabis industry because one of the plaintiffs is a cannabis company owner. Uh, I want to congratulate the U.S. women's national soccer team who won their case against the men's team to receive equal pay for equal work. I think the impl- implications of this win should reverberate around the country, and rightly so. Equal pay for equal work should cut across all barriers. I think gender, ethnicity, age, everything. Um, so my story today is from BevNet, the leading food and beverage-oriented media company. Uh, pocket-sized, potent cannabis beverage drink loud, uh, drink loud launches in California. So I'm going to do something unusual for me uh, today. I'm going to do a short story uh, and, and ask for uh, more feedback from the room. The BevNet story is about a new product, but the subject I'd like to talk about is potency. So there are multiple conversations going on around the country about limiting THC levels in cannabis, and I know that Roz McCarthy brought a story about potency caps just yesterday. Um, so now there's no, a new California product that pushes the potency to 11. It's called Drink Loud. It seems to be very new. The website doesn't show any locations where it's available. Instagram has no posts yet, so it's really just starting up. But Drink Loud is 100 milligrams of THC in a bottle that's less than two ounces. So it's way more concentrated than normal, uh, normal beverage, or at least the beverages I've seen out there. Um, it, it appears to be, the, the, the bottle appears to be about the size of a nail polish bottle, very small, but 100 megs of THC. Uh, so I'm curious what the room thinks about a very high, uh, high potency beverage like this getting out there. Uh, I always worry about what the enemies are going to say, you know, of how they're going to come at us to sort of bring down the house based on a product or event that, you know, goes wrong. I'm concerned about the brightly colored packaging, the smiley face as there's kind of logo and stuff, uh, but, but mostly about the very high potency thing in the uh, adult use market. What do you think? Shots. I miss, yeah, I, I missed the, uh, their launch last week. I was very, very, very sad. Big shout out to the Rove team and uh, JoJo over there. And uh, I can't wait to, to taste the product. And uh, it, it sounds like a, a couple of 151 shots of weed. Uh, we have a product that we distribute called Splash that's a nanoemulsified drink additive. And I really think that they're amazing. Just the idea of being able to, and I tell people this, I'm like, you know, when you go to a party and you want to be able to share, you could bring a six pack in your pocket. Um, and I think that that's really cool. The ability to, you know, have community in this opportunity and not like really force somebody into a specific drink where you could still have your drink of choice um, and then add your product to it. I mean, I think these products in general are innovative and really great. Um, and I think that they'll, they'll, um, eventually do well. I do think right now in a lot of these more innovative products, it's about us showing the market the value of it, not just showing the market the product itself. I think it's great. I've also tried Splash Nano and I feel like it's it's phenomenal because it's at parties you're able to like take as much as you want. You can really dose if you just want a couple milligrams or not. And it really increases that social interaction, which I think we all are seeking after this pandemic. I think 100 milligram beverage products are great. I look forward to trying this, although I would caution novice users and new users to use this product cautiously because two ounces with 100 milligrams, you know, a shake of the hand could mean a much higher dose. And if you're unexperienced, that could really change your evening or day. Yeah. And Brandon, do you have to shake it up? 
Is it homogenized? Is that the word I'm looking when for? When they're emulsified, nano emulsified, you usually shouldn't have to. Majority of these products to be, you know, quality end up having a good homogeneity between the the different, you know, not having like layers. But that would actually show whether or not the product was like ready to be able to actually be carried around that way. All right, we are at the end of time for well, that. Hang story. on, hang on, Rico. I'm sorry. We we've got Ganja Chica and Joan Irvine up from the audience. I think we're gonna end the show with with these two comments. Ganja uh, Chica, thank, go ahead. Thank you, thank you, real quick. Um, I did go to the loud, and if you PTR uh, my my picture, I actually have a picture of the loud next to a tie pin. Um, I like these. I, there was no aftertaste as a as a as a smoker that are you know I partake of all the time. These are amazing. I love them. Um, I think everybody, you know, I think if you're in California, definitely should try them. But uh, amazing product, amazing product. Thank you. Joan Irvine, you're muted. Joan, did you want to weigh in? I don't know, Susan. I know while we're waiting on Joan, I know I wanted to say oh, that okay, you okay. try the whole okay. thing, you'll never okay. know what it all does. Yeah. Hi, can you hear me now? Yep. Okay, first of all, I think the beverages are great. I stopped drinking alcohol back in May because I was able to use a product that I couldn't put in my club soda, and it's really helped me through it. The own, and I'm really looking forward to trying Loud. I will say that I went to their website and I could not find the ingredients in it. And I take a look at all the ingredients in the products before I use them. But I think it's great. I think it's so important that we have that. And I'm really looking forward to trying this product. Thank you. Yeah, me too. But we've reached the end of the show. It was a really good one. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines every day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Nicole and Rico for co-producing the show and to our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. And thank you, audience for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Your addition to our show makes the state of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Say adios, Rico. Adios.